Hello and welcome to Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary Paulos, Executive Director of Regenerative Rising, and with me today is Bill Reed, architect, planner, regenerative design consultant, principal at the Regenesis Group, and managing director of the Place Fund. Bill is a pioneer in the regenerative architecture and planning sector, and he continues to be a key player in the way human habitat is reimagined. Apart from his role as principal at both Regenesis Incorporated and the Place Fund, two organizations that look at built habitat and real estate with a whole systems perspective, Bill is also a process facilitator, an educator, and an author in the sustainability and regeneration space. He's the co-founder of the LEED Building Rating System and was at the helm of the Green Building Council, driving the transformation of architectural design and construction sectors towards environmental consciousness. Thank you for joining me today, Bill. I'm so delighted to host you and look forward to what will evolve here. Thank you, Nisha. Nice to be here. So this is such a big sector, construction, real estate, and, and planning, and overall sort of what is urban and rural development. Um, and today it is one considered one of the most polluting um, players, one of the most degenerative um, sectors, so to speak. Um, and it's probably one of the biggest destroyers of land and natural habitat as such. But then when it comes down to it, we're talking about shelter, a basic human need. Um, and in its design and implementation, we have to find ways of integrating into nature. So uh, I'm wondering, Bill, if you could start us off by taking us through what it means to be regenerative in the design of space and place and the kind of transformational impact that you're working towards uh, in this sector for decades now. OK, we'll give it a try. The uh, There's a lot to cover, but I think the place to begin is to understand that there is no such thing as a regenerative building or a regenerative object. What we're talking about is a regenerative system. And so whether we're talking about agriculture or business or real estate or shelter, um, all of those have an opportunity to add value to the system they're part of. And that value may not happen with the actual objective that you may be serving, but through the process of serving it. So another way to say that is, I tell, I like to tell architects and planners, your project is not the project. The project is the system of life. Your project emerges from that. And sometimes your project doesn't emerge from that. Sometimes the answer is no project. Sometimes the answer is a much different project or in a different location. And I'm going to risk really confusing things by saying this is the this is a long game that we're looking at. We, um, as you said in your introduction, that we're buildings destroy land. Well, how much land can we destroy before we destroy ourselves? Because what we're sustaining is life. That's what sustainability is all about, is sustaining life. And unless we are working in partnership with life, we will probably destroy ourselves. So the real long game of regenerative anything is how do we uh, create that 
co-evolutionary relationship between humans and all life. And the long game answer is that just like the squirrels in my backyard, they stop having babies when there's not enough food. They, their population is controlled. We have not paid attention to that. And we think that we can, we assume that there is going to be food forever and resources forever. At some point, and it's, we're hitting that, hitting that now, where we've bounced back from those limits. And um, when are we as a culture going to live with in balance with what nature can provide and, what, and how we support nature as well, that re reciprocal relationship? Let me just stop there for a minute. Is this making sense before I ramble on any further? No, absolutely. It's, um, you know, it's, I'm really excited to explore this idea of co-evolutionary co sort of uh, way of living and how do we how do we that that's a great example of like um how nature and beings in nature other than human beings adapt really quickly when when things change um so yeah absolutely it makes sense okay so that leads us then to the logical what logical scale of how to work this stuff so you hear a lot of talk this as is, it makes sense, you know, we need to save the planet. Really what we're saying when we say that is we need to actually stop the damage we're causing to the planet so we can save ourselves. As we all know, the planet will be around, but we're talking about an anthropocentric view of life. We care about us in order for, and if we really care about humans, then we have to care about all other life because that's our support system. We haven't made that leap as a, as a culture. Or we've forgotten, I should say, that that relationship is paramount. So um, not sure where I was going with that, but oh yeah, that the idea is, is that we can't save the planet. It's too big, it's too abstract. There's no CEO in charge of the planet. So what's our, what's our option? Well, the option is that we actually can save our places. The places we can understand, we, have, we can see them, we can feel them, we understand when we've exceeded their limits, we can see the pollution that we're perhaps wallowing in. And as a result, we do something about that. Eleanor Ostrom, the Nobel laureate in 2009 in economics, proved uh, with her work on common pool resource that when we have a common pool of resources, we actually take care of those resources. Sometimes it goes way out to an extreme of degradation, but people pull it back because we can see the system at work and our role in it. So the point I'm trying to make is that regeneration is not about saving the planet. Regeneration is about working in a co-evolutionary relationship so that our places are healthy. If we save our places, if we have healthy places, we will have a healthy planet. So that scale of engagement is, is really important. And that's what allows buildings and or master planning projects or any infrastructure project to be an acupuncture point to engage place. And so when we're working on a, on, a, um, on a project, we start with understanding the system and what who, who that system, not what that system, but who that system wants to be. Every place is a unique living organism. New Orleans is different than Mumbai. So, right? We know they're different. What makes them different? But and unless we understand that, that's no different than me assuming that Nisha, you're like every other person in the world and I can just treat you the same way or 
ignore you or be kind to you or whatever uh, relationship I want to have with you, the same exact way I'm going to be in, with some other person. And we know that's not the case because we're all different and we honor those differences and we love to honor those differences. We've forgotten how to do that in our places. So what we've done is we've created generic answers, rating systems that are like lead, for instance, is applied over the entire world. That's ridiculous, actually. And so it's a good start. It, it raises lead, for instance, raises issues that we need to be paying attention to. But now we need to contextualize what we do by understanding what this particular place needs. And I'll give you an example about that. Um, we were working on a project up in Idaho and uh, it was all prime farmland that was going to be turned into a housing development. Well, this wasn't a, the community wasn't happy about that. We weren't happy about that, uh, but the developer was intent on putting a thousand three and a half acre ranchettes in this uh, landscape. If we were following the lead criteria, we would say, well, we need to keep prime farmland. Check, that's a good idea, except 90% of the world's agriculture is destructive, hence regenerative agriculture, right? So this prime farmland was actually destroying multiple ecosystems, polluting the river, destroying the habitat connectivity um, and, uh, and destroying the watershed. So this prime farmland was terrible actually. And the reconciler here is that humans could come along and, and, and ask, what does this place need to be? And this place needed to have rivers running through, streams running through to create connectivity to the river and the mountains to allow the, the nutrient cycle to, to be effective and take nutrients back upstream, like salmon, for instance, to fertilize the, the, wood, the, the, uh, the forest. The only way that was going to happen would be by removing the farmers from that land and bringing back that reconnectivity again. And development could have actually, it didn't, never got built, but development could have been the way to do that by, paying, by buying off the farmers and allowing um, the development to reconnect those, that watershed again in a way that allowed the animals to traverse it. I know this is, perhaps an abstract story, but the point of this is, is that humans have a role to play on the planet. What we need to be doing is asking what is our role in this place and how do we bring back the, 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 the diversity of species and diversity of relationships to allow evolution to happen. And I'll say one more thing because I'm talking way too much, but is that what we're looking for is dynamic stability on the planet. Right now, we are in an unstable situation. Climate change, because of all the monocultures we've produced, we are now in a planet that's reacting with floods and fires and uh, famines, droughts, uh, at a great, much greater frequency than it used to do is because we've created multiple monocultures. We need to bring back that diversity and diversity of relationships in order for evolutionary processes to self-organize and take hold because without that, uh, we can't do it ourselves. Okay, I'll stop. Wow, thank you. That's actually a lot of, um, that's a lot of information. And I wanna unpack a few things. What really stood out to me was that particular description where you're talking about a development or um, a master planning project being that acupuncture point through which you 
create ripples of healing, right? Um, and I want to sort of unravel that a little bit. Um, and, you know, so it kind of boils down to using architecture or development or settlement planning at whichever scale to to sort of start the healing process to to right some of the wrongs that we have we may have committed or even add to the abundance of nature um so I want to ask you if you could share a bit more about it the, the project example was really really great so um could you take us through some of the ways in which you do that um in practice sure so the first thing is that real estate is disruptive, right? A new project comes into town. People are afraid of it. Uh, they don't know if it's going to change their quality of life. And so they're reactive and negative, usually, when in advance. That's what we, 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 we like that. Because um, what it does, it engages people in something that's important to them in a new way. And when we uh, approach the, uh, the folks in, in the community, and we're hired by the developer typically to do this work, and they say, well, you're working for the developer. Why should we trust you? And we say, you don't have to trust us. We don't want you to trust us. We want you to understand the way life needs to work here, and then you to help inform this development. So the worst thing that we can do as a developer, by the way, when we're hired by developers, we say, do not show anybody anything because you know, the typical developer is saying, look at this great design that our architect created, or the architect stands up and look at this great design that I created, or we created, and isn't it wonderful? Well, the architect and developer may think it's wonderful, but the community could care less about that. Maybe in some cases they may, may appreciate it, but generally it's an answer that's imposed on them. And anytime you have an answer imposed on you, you're gonna be reactive. So what we do is we say, um, do not show any proposal at all. In fact, we say to the community, the developer is actually re retracting any designs that they have proposed because all the developer deserves is a profit. The developer deserves, and by the way, nature works on a profit. So I don't want to go down that avenue. Everybody, make everything in nature needs to have profit or else you can't invest and create new. So the developer deserves a profit. We very, very rarely had pushback against that, but the developer does not have a right to do what they want to do in your community. You have that right to work with the developer to figure that out, as long as the developer can get a profit out of it. And 99% of the people say, yeah, that makes sense. So good. And the developer, by the way, wants quality of life for this community too, because his or her investment is not gonna be protected without quality of life. Because what people are really concerned about is not the development, is they're really interested in the quality of life and so of their whole city or ecosystem or neighborhood, if nothing else. So what we do is we help the community see the potential. And this is a really important word. We are not solving a problem. We are working on potential. So what's the potential of a child, for instance? We don't know, but we can kind of sense the child has direction in a certain way. Nisha, you probably want you probably knew you wanted to be an architect when you were young. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then you had that potential. Your parents probably honored that. And um, a place, for instance, Santa Fe, New Mexico, 
probably wants to be a dry land ecosystem. Boston, Massachusetts wants to be um, temperate rainforest. Um, those places have that kind of potential. We've typically destroyed that with asphalt and concrete and building projects and infrastructure and lack of care, but that potential always exists. In fact, greater potential like the desert in, in the Mideast, most of those deserts were forests, that potential still exists. And so we help people see that sim simple potential, not only that, but social potential, ecological uh, infrastructure potential. We help them explore the nature of that system that they're part of. And instead of them fighting against the development, which let's say that they win, they stop the development, they don't have an improved ecosystem. They don't have an improved city. They just have a stopped development. So we flip the discussion to say, what do we want instead of what don't we want? And that brings people together in a ways that are, that's very, well, very unique because most people aren't offered that opportunity to work that way. And we then work over the next year, typically it takes about a year for people to start seeing that all those different special interest groups, let's say somebody's interested in climate change and somebody else is interested in habitat connectivity and somebody else is interested in gender equity and somebody else is interested in uh, security and someone else in beach erosion. I don't know, you, you name it. There's hundreds of issues that activist groups are interested in. We want all those groups to be gathered together in service of this larger potential because all of them are interested in the quality of life, the, the unique quality of life potential in that place. But what doesn't happen in communities is people don't work together. We remain in silos of activity. We protect our funding, right? We, uh, my ego doesn't, we don't want to uh, interact with you because I like being the head honcho. All those ego games and protection games uh, create silos of activity where we're not cooperating and coordinating with each other. When you offer the largest system of potential for people, we find out that uh, we meet with them every month or every six weeks to help explore what everybody's working on. And it takes about a year before people start awakening and saying, wait a minute, I didn't know you were working on that. We're kind of working on the same thing, but in a slightly different way. Maybe we should coordinate. Maybe we should cooperate. And it, we see consistently it takes about a year for that to emerge. And once that happens, you're in a different world. Because our government doesn't know how to do that. And so what we're creating is an aspirational governance, if you will, or aspirational, I wouldn't call it governance, aspirational um, initiative that allows people to explore things in ways they never have been able to explore before. And now they're co-creating the kind of environment they want to be part of. All right, I'll stop my ramble. So that's, um, it's really, <laughs> it's really interesting that the word development um, raises suspicion very commonly. And this is, this is a feature across the world. Um, I'm sitting here in India and, and it's the same here. As soon as a developer enters the, the room, there is suspicion. So, um, but then, you know, the word itself actually has a very positive connotation. Um, and, um, I want to, um, you know, uh, explore that a little bit. What, what really, cause I'm also a planner and, 
the idea of urban development or rural development or what a developed country is or you know the word is so potent um but i feel that it's completely misconstrued what it represents um and i want to hear your thoughts on what does it what does development really mean um in in light of regeneration uh and in in the world that we're trying to create moving forward yeah beautiful thank you that's a great question uh yeah and, and particularly i'm glad you asked that because we make it a point to say what we do as regenerative development and design notice the design comes after development in fact the i'm not sure you can well there is regenerative design but you first have to develop the understanding of the system of the place of the people and work on a developmental journey the synonym for development is evolution by the way uh so unfor it's unfortunate that we another definition for development is adding value which is a perfectly perfectly natural um and uh, i appreciate that definition but what we've done is real estate developers are theoretically adding value to that system except when they're not and let's say 50% of the time they're certainly not adding value they're actually subtracting value or they're adding value in some domains but not adding value in others you know the forum for the future has out of london has the five capitals <clears throat> which goes beyond the triple bottom line because it includes human development and infrastructure in addition to social equity environmental health and the economics so that human development side is a capital meaning it, there's a return on investment when you invest in people right there's a return on investment when you invest in infrastructure or there should be and um there should be value added when we invest in those things so when we are developing we are actually looking to have a return on investment of the capital which means that we're adding value to the system not subtracting value and but in general we are destroying multiple zones multiple arenas of capital when we develop blindly like we are today so regenerative development is looking at adding value in all those five capitals over time and that's another thing that we need to understand about regenerative development it is not an episodic event it is a forever engagement if it stops you've stopped regenerating and while we're on that well i'm on that subject and again give me you know, give me the hook nisha please if i'm talking too much no not at all i'm just thinking you earlier mentioned dynamic stability yeah, and then, yeah so yeah yeah so so what are we developing and um and who's who's developing that over time the the deliverable in quotation marks of regenerative development and design is building the capacity and capability for that community to co-evolve if we do not deliver that there's no regeneration going on and let me say one other thing about regeneration it does not mean restoration and i can't say that loudly enough but that's the way the world is using it now it's a synonym for restoration yes it does include restoration for sure but what happens 10 years later what even happens a year later we have a memory of if we're lucky we have a memory of a decade in in western culture um 
So we, we, res we restore a wetland. Well, what does that mean to restore a wetland? It does not mean to restore it to its original condition. There is no original condition. It's always evolving. So what we're talking about when we restore something is restoring an ecological subsystem, such as a wetland, a forest, a riparian corridor, that kind of thing. So we're, we're restoring the capability of an ecological subsystem to uh, evolve. That's all. We're, that's what we're doing. They, that, there's enough diversity of species and relationship in that system that it can kind of take off on its own. Now, if we forget about that as a culture, well, why did we restore that wetland? I need a parking lot there, or I need an office building there. And we said, well, we don't need that. We don't really know what that wetland does anyway. We can get rid of 50% of it. What we have forgotten to do is regenerate our relationship with that wetland and why it's important. And as a culture, if we forget, because we always need to be reminded, this is why cultures with oral traditions, in a way, are much more effective. Because you write it down, you forget about it. If it's an oral tradition, you remember it. And uh, so I'm being obviously overly, overly simplistic. But the idea here is that regeneration is about regenerating relationship. In a marriage, let's use that as an example. If you have an argument with your spouse, you regenerate that relationship, hopefully, afterwards. And it's a continual process of regeneration. Your whole life is with that other person. You have to regenerate yourself. You had a bad day. You screwed up. You made a jerk of yourself or whatever. You, oh, I gotta, I've got to stand up. I've got to get better at this. So you regenerate yourself. As a culture and as a system, we don't know how to do that. So this work is about using whether it's whether it's agriculture or business or real estate, any acupuncture point can serve as a way to re-engage the whole system. Now I can take issue with the regenerative agriculture because I don't think it goes far enough, but um, because regenerating the soil sounds great. How are you regenerating the community to actually engage that soil in a perpetual ongoing improvement? All right, so, all right. All that holding together? Yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, the idea is not to do something and leave it and end it there, but rather use it as a point to plant a seed and then nurture it and enable the community or um, bring awareness and sort of rejuvenate the community, let me say, to continue to nurture it for generations to come so that it right. adapts and evolves. Um, yeah. That's a really beautiful way of looking at at settlement or habitat, um, and I um, I think uh, it's very powerful. I still am uh, I'm really loving that phrase dynamic stability, and it's completely yeah. <laughs> missing in our cities, right? Like, where is the dynamic uh, component at all, or stability for that matter? It's just that it's it's just heaviness. Um, that that's it's boiled down to all of this concrete and asphalt everywhere right right so let's talk about uh, well, let's see i wonder what say one more point before i get there uh, oh why we have new years new years should be that opportunity every year to actually assess how did we do how are things how's the system working 
And uh, how's our relationship working? How's our community working? How's the ecosystem working? And you do that, that's a, that's a ritual, should be a ritual in our society. And we've lost that ritual. So talk about dynamic stability. Right now, we're on a planet that is no longer stable. We build concrete and we build dams and we do build you know, farm monocultures to make things manageable, right? Manageable uniformity, John Tillman Lyle spoke about. And of course, manageable uniformity is death. Monoculture is death. And so the planet is dying right now because of, of what we, we've tried to stabilize it without nature with man-made artifacts. Dynamic stability is what we're looking for. We want, just like that wetland has enough diversity of species to have this self-evolving continuum going on. We need that in every place at a, at a much greater magnitude of um, multiple species, multiple uh, social st structures, multiple um, uh, different ways of generating energy, different ways of, of treating waste. That we, we want diversity because that diversity as appropriate in place will allow st true stability to be uh, re rebirthed, regenerated. So uh, E.O. Wilson said, better amok than regimented. And so we want amokness. We don't want regiment anymore. And because that's what allows this cross-fertilization to happen. My colleague, Joe Glansberg has an analogy <clears throat> when he, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a zoo, for instance, has a diversity of species but it has no diversity of relationship. And as a result, it's a dead organism. The zoo itself is, can't propagate, can't achieve dynamic stability. Okay, so I made that point, is that? <laughs> Very powerful. Um, you are tuned in to Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary Paulos, Executive Director of Regenerative Rising. And with me today is Bill Reed, architect, planner, regenerative design consultant, principal at the Regenesis Group, and managing director of the Place Fund. Um, Bill, I, I, on the Regenesis website, I read the statement, nature doesn't need our protection, she needs our collaboration. And I found that so profound and meaningful. Um, and I want to just uh, ask you to share some thoughts on what does that look like? What does collaborating with nature look like? Yeah, great. Um, trying to think where to take that. Well, first of all, we need to understand what nature wants, not what we want. Actually, I'm going to take that back. We also have a role in this. Humans have a role. We just need to have our role understood and, and harmonized with what nature wants. So uh, what does nature want? Well, every place is different. And just as I use that example, what's a dry land versus a temperate rainforest, those systems ask different things of us. And the human role, you know, the, the healthiest ecosystems on the planet have been when humans are present not when they're removed. Now that's a fairly recent observation by the academic world. Uh, 
guy named George Day, D-E-Y, in 1953, first proposed that, uh, I don't know what tribe he was looking at, were actually sophisticated managers of the ecosystem. And he was his academic career was ruined for that preposterous statement. But in fact, now there's hundreds of evidences of that. I think the classic one is Kat Anderson's book, Tending the Wild. Is that 90% of the state of California was managed by the Miwok peoples. It wasn't, God didn't create that or God created it through people, whatever. John Muir said, God, look what God hath wrought, right? Well, the Miwok people were the intermediaries um, figuring that out. I think it was the Miwoks. So um, what does it mean to manage an ecosystem? Well, you have to pay attention. We have a fun story about that. Uh, and we can learn it very quickly. But I'll, I'll share two stories. Um, one is um, the Eastern forest from North Carolina, Eastern US forest from North Carolina up to uh, Nova Scotia is pretty much was a chestnut, oak, hickory forest before European settlers got here. After European settlers got here, it's become a beech maple forest. So what was going on? Well, the native peoples every spring and fall burnt cold fires to manage the ecosystem. And what that did is it deacidified the soil, killed the beaches. It basically, the cold, these cold fires used the leaf duff from a year's worth of, or half a year's worth of uh, detritus. So they're very quick fires. Beaches and maples generally take over chestnut hickory oak forests but they're thin barked trees. And so when the native peoples lit these fires, it killed the saplings, the beech and maple saplings, but allowed the thick bark, oaks, chestnuts, hickories to survive, hemlocks to survive, hickories, I think. So those are nut bearing trees. They created a lot more fruit and meat, nut meats, for the for living species. It created a greater diversity of food for not only the people, but the forest as well. So in managing this ecosystem, they created more diversity of life, more stability as a result. And those forests lived forever now, lived you know, over thousands of years. Now Europeans come, they extirpate the native peoples, that management system goes downhill because they thought it was a mess, better a muck than red. But they believe Europeans believe regimented was better than a muck, and um, destroyed that entire cooperative management system between human beings and nature. And as a result, we have an oversimplified forest that supports a lot less diversity of species. And we're in the situation we're in now. That story is that making sense? Yeah, it's a really Really meaningful story. So let me let me share with you a, a kind of a fun follow up story. So we are working on um, uh, the regeneration of, of one of the largest farms in New Jersey years ago, and won't get into the details of the of the, but one of the family meetings um, we were we were related the story, and uh, one of the family members said. Uh, Come on, who? How did they figure that out? How did the native peoples figure that out? And the son, who fly, who has two Lear jets in his garage, I mean, he's very wealthy people. Um, uh, he said, "I knew that when I was eight years old. 
And they laughed at him because, you know, brother and sister relationship, you know, get out of here. He said, well, here's how it happened. He said, we had a fire on the lower 40 acres. And for three years, we had the best crops ever coming out of that 40 acres because the fire neutrified the soil in a new way. He said, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Fire and is important is an important um, process. So if a guy with a couple of Learjets in his garage can figure that out, you know, from just a year or two observation, imagine people that are actually living close to that system are very closely attuned to it. So what does it mean to cooperate with nature? That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Fantastic. I was actually reading um, that in California that the U.S. Forest Department is collaborating with native tribes to re re um, sort of uh, introduce these systems into the mainstream because the tribes are still doing it in their uh, man in the lands that they manage but now um th that that was a very heartwarming story that the uh, that there is this collaboration of worlds um which could you know lead to really powerful ways of uh, regeneration um and i want to ask you like uh how this is a especially now i mean november was uh national native american and alaskan heritage month and in and you uh speaking about this is this perfect example of collaboration and in in sort of the principles of regeneration that uh, you follow um do you have any um any ways in which you've collaborated with uh, native systems or uh communities oh, yeah. um Absolutely. Um, oh, I can get into some politically hot, political hot water here. But uh, so we work in New Zealand and Australia and uh, British Columbia, which are three of the areas in the world that are actually doing pretty good work and rapprochement, right, between um, Native peoples and Western culture. And um, so, and in fact, I'm designing a course right now with a Maori woman to teach uh, uh, soon. So that's 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 been an interesting journey and it's taught me a lot. Um, we, I'll share one project where the, the uh, Musqueam people in Vancouver uh, were affected by a large infrastructure project and we were separated from them because the lawyers have been dealing with lawyer to lawyer, um, which by the way, sorry, lawyers, it's always a problem when the lawyers get involved, but the lawyers have been dealing with for, I don't know, 30 years of trying to come through some treaty negotiation. And all we were doing is working on an infrastructure project. And we said, well, we have to have the primary stakeholders here and the Mus uh, Musqueam people are primary stakeholders we really need them here. Well, we got to have the lawyers that, that we've been dealing with the lawyers and we'll just keep them apart. Well, finally, I whined enough about it that we got somebody to uh, attend. I'm not sure if it was me whining about it, but anyway, we, we got to end, ended up having a couple of uh, Musqueam uh, representatives attend the workshop. We had 150 people on this design team. This is a massive project. And the Musqueam people came away and said, this is amazing. This is what we're talking about. And we need to be in relationship. And so that broke open, um, broke open the logjam, as it were, to begin to actually have go beyond the lawyers and uh, and begin to be in relationship. 
So hopefully, and the project is ongoing, that um, that relationship will continue to enrich. But as one, uh, I really appreciated what one of the Musqueams said to me, uh, this is not about whether you're indigenous or not, or this kind of um, uh, overwrought uh, concern about, um, you know, not treading on indigenous territory. We are all indigenous, as Anna Paulina says in, in Australia. We're all indigenous to place. And as the one of the Musqueam elders said to me, he said, if you believe what we do, we are brothers and sisters. Um, meaning, and what we were talking about there was um, taking care of the health of the Fraser River so the salmon could return. Um, that's that, and this project gave us an opportunity to work on those ecological dimensions as well as the social dimensions. I'm oversimplifying that, but that's basically uh, the end result. Right. It boils down to, uh, as you were mentioning before, you know, breaking through silos and looking at a system as a whole, as a living system. Um, and I think uh, that's sort of this beautiful message that uh, when when that ancient tribes have always done across the world, which we as a, a collective society now have to uh, relearn in a sense. Um, and um, regenerate. But, yeah, and regenerate. Um, but I'm... Uh, Wondering also, at the end of the day, you work as a consultant, you're a professional, and uh, we're still part of this this sort of market um, that caters to the demand, right? And and I'm I'm wondering how do you think that a consumer must readjust and realign, and like what advice would you give to somebody who's looking to you know, start a building project, uh, uh, a house or a development of a larger uh, planning project? Well, the advice that I would give is you, you ought to take a look at what the social ecological system, what a healthy sociological system could look like in this place. What's its potential? not what the problems are. You know, when you work with potential, problems dissolve. They actually disappear. If you can actually have your, your eyes focused, your being focused on the North Star. And what, what should you work on? Well, it all depends on the place and knowing what that place in particular needs or stands in, in need of and engaging people around that. So I, I know this, uh, it sounds so overly simplistic, but it's really simple. It's, and the reason it's simple, uh, well, the reason why we aren't doing it simply is because we have our egos and attachment to the way we think, think things should be. Yes, we need shelter. Now, the, here's another really important thing. The, the, this is called the law of three. Uh, it's been around, Sufis, it's been around for probably four, three or 4,000 years. Um, Gurdjieff and Bennett and others kind of re, reinvested energy in it. But all life can be seen as an activating force. I'm drawing an arrow from the right and then an act restraining force, an arrow from the left. And typically that's where we stop in our culture. Push, pull, win, lose. We have, that's why we have lawyers, right? Why Democrat, Republican. Uh, conservative, you know, whatever, liberal. And 
We think that compromise is the height of political sophistication. Compromise is death. Because when we compromise with nature, for instance, and then we compromise again, and then we compromise again, and then we compromise again, we are right in the position we're in right now on the planet. And compromise is a word that I believe should be excised out of the English language. Nature doesn't compromise. It harmonizes. It reconciles. The oak tree does not argue with the willow tree about exchanging nutrients. They know that we're in it together. We better figure this out together. And uh, what we find out is that when we are able to work with the community to understand the potential of that system and understand what the developer needs, we can reconcile. We can actually harmonize that. And I've never seen that. I've never seen that fail. And I'm kind of amazed at that. But when we have seen it fail, we've had less. When people just say, oh, it doesn't work or no, we're not going to do this. But when we get people to hold the cognitive dissonance and what it looks like to create human shelter and also protect nature at the same time, new ideas and new answers appear. It's, it's profound. And the, lack, the only thing that we lack is the will to try. So in a lot of senses, this work is about developing will in a community to engage in a new way with, with the systems that they're part of. And these building projects are a way for, that, for us to practice this and to, and to learn. I'll stop there. I don't know if I'm digging a hole here. No, that's a, a beautiful example um, of uh, how we can all get what we want. Um, and I think that's a that's a good thought that can um, be seized by anybody, the potential. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you on that one. I don't know if it's to get what we want. It's get what we actually need or and get what, you know, uh, I think I want a red Ferrari. I probably don't need it, right? And okay. so um, I think I think ultimately we recognize that we want it, but we don't even we don't know what we don't know, and this is a process to understand that. Right. Yeah. It's 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 more than just about what you're seeing up front and you think you want, but what you really need as a person to your soul, right? Like that whole reconciliation. Um, very, it's very useful, very enlightening sort of words. Um, thank you for sharing so generously, Bill. Uh, we're almost at the end of our time, but uh, before we close, I want to ask you if you would like to share any sources of inspiration or guidance that you lean on, um, a book, a movie, a, a, a person, anything that has served you well that you would like to share. Hmm. Oh boy, I wish you'd prime me on that one. I've got a lot, but um, oh, I think Fritjof Capra's Web of Life was foundational for me. Um, and uh, I think that uh, from a social perspective, I'm reading a book right now, if I recommend, uh, which speaks to the flexibility and need to uh, become much more sophisticated in our social governance process. And that's um, The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David, I don't remember his last name. Um, it came out a couple a year or two ago, uh, which basically describes uh, 
from an anthropological perspective, the, the flexibility that very sophisticated Aboriginal peoples, how they govern themselves and shifting from command and control, very flat organizations. It's not just one way to govern. We, it's government depending on the situation, which I found pretty fascinating. Um, those, are, those are two books that come to mind. You know, I'm going to have so many. I have, I have a library that wraps around here. And, uh, <laughs> well, let me see. I, th I think it's I think it's important though for us to understand that this is a metaphysical journey. This is not a techno. This is not only a technological or a technique journey. That this requires. Uh, this is about us changing the paradigms out of which we are oper operating and requires us to be introspective and very reflective. There's no expectation that any one religion or spiritual tradition is, is right. But as Kathy Laszlo said, sustainability is an insi inside job. You got to work here. What's beautiful about a whole system, though, is it doesn't matter where you start. For me, uh, it was starting out there and saying, how do we take care of the living systems that were that are really what sustainability is about? And then realizing, oh, if I'm a jerk, I'm not going to be very effective in the group because it takes a group to work on things. And if the group doesn't know how to manage themselves, they're not going to be effective in the system. So this inside journey is integral to working out there. And... Um, so who do we need to be to, to truly link up with one another to create massive change? Is, uh, I'm not answering your question directly, but I think it's an important point to leave on. Yeah, absolutely. That was fantastic. Um, what I was, well, I was asking for inspiration and I think that was, those are beautiful words. Um, thank you so much, Bill. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. And I'm so grateful for the very insightful and practical way in which you led us through the topic, developing and designing regeneratively. Um, it is something that affects us all wherever we are, our living environment, and it is critical to ensure that it serves us and serves our well-being as well as the well-being of the living planet. Um, so on that note, thank you for joining us for Regenerative Rising's podcast, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I am your host, Nisha Mary Paulos, Executive Director of Regenerative Rising. And with me today is Bill Reed, architect, planner, regenerative design consultant, principal at the Regenesis Group, and managing director of the Place Fund. Thank you, Nisha. <laughs>